it's been a full day. <laughs> I wonder how much room we all have for more. <laughs> so I want to, I'm hoping to um, keep tonight fairly uncomplicated. You know, it feels like the sort of evening to tuck everyone up with a bedtime story or something. <laughs> um, but it also seems uh, a good opportunity to talk on a, uh, the theme of the day, the theme of, of gratitude. <clears throat> and actually feeling that I'd like to dedicate my speaking and our listening, I'd like us to dedicate our, the speaking and our, our listening to our ancestors so there's, I don't know where I've heard it in what strand of the Buddhist tradition, but the idea that our practice uh, benefits seven generations before us and seven generations to come. You know, that, that it touches that far back and forward in time and who knows whether seven generations is literal. It could be way, way further than that. But to just dedicate this listening to... Uh, the ancestors from whom we've inherited these bodies, you know, our families, and from whom we've inherited this world, this land, this place, these societies with their systems that are both creative and amazing and messed up and, uh, you know, with their, their wise parts and their unwise parts. And also um, the ancestors, the teachers through whom we've inherited all the teachings that have been meaningful, helpful to us in our lives. Uh, so the Dharma teachings, but all things that have supported our growth as, as uh, wiser, more flourishing uh, kind of human beings. And particularly for me, uh, you know, a shout out to Kutisar and Tanisara who have been really such important um, inspiration and, and models and not just for their, the teaching that they, that they give out but just for the, the integrity with which they've, they've lived their lives. It's really um, you know, been, is an ongoing source of inspiration to me. And then we can also dedicate our, our listening to the, those who are coming after us, to our children the children of our bodies, if we have them, those of you who have them, I don't myself. But we also have the children the, from whom, who are going to inherit this world from us, you know, to whom we're, we're passing on this world with all of its uh, happiness and suffering. And also to whom we're passing on these teachings in all the ways that we all share through our practice uh, we pass on what we can of wisdom to those who come after us. So, uh, also in terms of our, our ancestors, those whom we inherit uh, this world that we live in from, I just felt like I'd like to share the voice of um, on retreat in the summer at IMS, I had the good fortune to sit with a, a yogi who's been practicing Vipassana for about 20 years and or over 20 years and sits regularly at IMS. And it turned out that she is the chief historical preservation office, officer for the Wampanoag tribe, who were the tribe who participated in the, the very first Thanksgiving with the English settlers uh, some of whom happened to come from round the corner from where I grew up. And uh, she wrote a piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago at, at Thanksgiving. Part of her, her ongoing work in life is to try to keep the historical records of her tribe alive and to, to share um, the history of what, what actually happened. But she said that... Uh, uh, aside from that, or even more important than teaching that to the children who come after us, is to actually um, teach them 
the importance of the spirit of generosity, not just through uh, rituals and, and observances, but actually uh, the spirit of generosity. She says, our country will benefit socially when young children, and I think when all of us, grasp gratitude in a real way beyond ritual. And we should be proud that we have a national holiday centered upon simply being thankful. Uh, it's uh, lovely for me as an English person, this is my, only my third Thanksgiving that I've ever experienced, and it's, it feels like a, a great privilege to be, to be part of that. <clears throat> so gratitude is, you know, it's quite it's prominent in, in the Buddhist teachings. You might have noticed it amongst the things that we've been chanting about in the, the Sutta on the Highest Blessings. And if you also, if you observe things in that way, you might even have picked up the Pali word for gratitude during your time at Spirit Rock. If you've been down to the hut that's just below the gate with all the photographs of the different teachers whose Dharma streams have flowed into the river that is Spirit Rock, it says, in gratitude, katanyuta. Uh, this is the, the Pali word for gratitude. But actually, this evening, I, I want to talk more. And Tanissara made a joke about we were going to put out, maybe put out some cardboard cutouts of ourselves and play you, a, play you a tape. And we're not doing that. But I, I want to say that I, I'm actually giving you somebody else's talk tonight, largely. Uh, because the most profound and practical teaching on gratitude that I've come across actually comes from someone who's not part of the Buddhist tradition, although he's practiced with Zen teachers since 1966. But actually, he's a, a Benedictine monk, and I'm sure some of you know his, him and his work. His TED Talk, um, which much of this is taken from, has had over six million viewings on YouTube. Um, and his name is uh, Brother David Steindl Rast, and he's now in his early 90s. And this TED Talk is only, it's only a few years old, I believe. Um, he's someone whose who's life really, his, his spiritual life really started um, with an experience of of gratitude. He was born in the 1920s in Vienna and he was uh, about 14 years old when the Nazis invaded Austria and occupied Vienna. And as a teenage boy, he, he, as teenage boys, he and his friends saw all the older boys, you know, the boys two or three years older than them being conscripted into the German army during the Second World War. And uh, at that point, the Germans were beginning to lose the war and uh, all these young men were being killed. And their, their assumption was that, you know, they would, when they turned whatever it was, 18, they would be conscripted into the army. And they didn't really expect to have a future. So one of the things that happened is that he found himself really, uh, they found themselves really living for the present. And then when the war actually ended and this anticipated um, drafting into the army didn't happen, it was almost as if they'd been given their lives back. They'd been given a, a second chance at life. But anyway, he, he became a, a Benedictine monk in his 20s, uh, actually in New York. And he's, so he's been a monk for over 60 years. And... Uh, he gives a very beautiful teaching on gratefulness. So he tends to use the word gratefulness rather than gratitude, and I like this word gratefulness, because to me it, it speaks more to my immediate experience of something than gratitude can be a kind of concept or an ideal out there. Gratefulness has the kind of ring to it like mindfulness, That's something uh, tangible that we that we experience and his this this teaching that he he gives begins with something very beautiful he says there's something deeply personal 
that you already know about me and I know about you. Something that touches the very, the very core of who we are. And that it's true not only for us, but it's true of every single human being that we'll ever meet. And this is that all of us want to be happy. In this much, all of us are together. And we kind of know this as an idea. It's, it's pretty much like uh, Kitty Sara was talking about impermanence. You know, if somebody gave you a test and you said, are things permanent or impermanent, we'd all pass the test. But do we really get it? Do we really uh, live with our understanding at the forefront that each of us really simply wants to be happy? Yeah. And this, this, this simple truth about us connects me with... Uh, those Wampanoag elders who celebrated, the Wampanoag people who celebrated the first Thanksgiving, connects my southern Chinese ancestors with uh, the ancestors of each and every one of us here. It connects all the people who were named in the dedications uh, in the ceremony this afternoon. It's also uh, the beginning of the Bodhisattva um, teaching, the Bodhisattva ideal, the reflection. We're always invited to reflect that all beings wish to be happy. And if we can connect with one another on this level, it actually uh, opens up the possibility of a, a, a very... Um, a, a meaningful uh, and uh, heart-opening way of meeting. So I went to, uh, I was at a, a gathering, a question and answer gathering over tea back at the monastery in England where I used to live with one of the nuns. And there was a, a young woman there who was very engaged in social activism and political work. And she said to the nun, I just, I really struggle with... Uh, people who hold completely different views from myself. I just don't know how to talk to them. How can I, how can I talk to these people? And the nun said something very, very wise. She said, well, you, what you have to do is to find out what it is that you both want, what you both want in common. Uh, if we can tune in and relate to the other person's wish for happiness in the same way that we do. We have the beginning of a, of a way of meeting. But of course, you know, the, the, the difference is that we all differ in uh, how we imagine our happiness, what it is we think is going to make us to be happy. So in every, every society, every culture, there's always been um, this question asked, what's the secret of happiness? This is what the ancient Greek philosophers asked and spawned that whole tradition of philosophy. It's what's the, at the heart of all the religions. It's at the heart of all the questions that we bring to ourselves and we bring into this, into this space. So what's the connection between happiness and gratefulness or gratitude? So Brother David says uh, that many people would say that when you're happy, you're grateful. But if we really think about it, is that true? You know, we know people who have very fortunate circumstances in their lives who have everything that we think it would take to be happy and who are profoundly unhappy, who still feel that something is missing, something is lacking. And then we know other people who actually have what might seem to be very unfortunate or less fortunate uh, circumstances in their lives, but actually radiate happiness. So Tanissa was talking this morning about you know the sense of what does it mean to live in suitable places suitable places for practicing dharma 
So why is it that some people have a lot and are profoundly unhappy and some people have very little and are happy? And his suggestion is that the people who are happy are the ones who are grateful. It's not happiness that makes us grateful, but gratitude or gratefulness that makes us happy. So I just want to investigate that a bit more. So what, do we, what do we mean by gratefulness? And Brother David's suggestion is that um, if we look at our own experience, when we experience something that's really valuable to us, and when that thing is really given to us, it's not that we've gone out to earn it, uh, it's not that we've even deserved it, we haven't bought it, we haven't deserved it, we haven't earned it, but it's freely given to us, then what spontaneously arises in the heart is a feeling of gratitude and a feeling of happiness. And this is how gratefulness happens. So, for example, the sunrise this morning that was so beautiful and the light as we walked down to breakfast. Yeah. None of us asked for that. None of us did anything to make it happen. But uh, I think many people were touched uh, just by the beauty of that and that moment of enjoyment of being alive, awake to that beauty. Maybe different aspects of, of what's happened today have touched you in that way. So being surprised at the, the care and the, um, the lovely offerings at lunchtime. So these things are, are things that we haven't kind of demanded or gone looking for. They take us by surprise. And I love the fact that the, the, the word uh, gratefulness, gratitude, also uh, is connected with the word grace. So uh, both come from the, uh, the Latin gratus, which means pleasing or welcome. And grace... Uh, I looked in the dictionary and one of the definitions of grace, it says unmerited divine assistance. <laughs> so I have a sense that we're all, um, we're all the beneficiaries of that on this retreat and generally in our lives. But this is something that we're really, hopefully some of these practices we're doing are attuning us to. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that we don't have to deserve this? All we have to do is listen and be available. So gratitude or gratefulness, Brother David said, is when we experience something that we value and uh, it happens to us without our earning it or deserving it. And then he says, actually, the key to this kind of happiness is we don't need to experience it only occasionally. Or even, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's had a lot of benefit from doing gratitude practices, for example. And many of you have probably tried this, you know, at the end of a day, for example, thinking of things that you're grateful for. Uh, I picked up a suggestion from Jane Baraz of, uh, I used to for a while uh, share a text or an email at the end of every day with a friend and each of us would list five things that we were grateful for. And there was a lot of joy and a lot of pleasure uh, and a lot of support when we were having a difficult time in kind of sharing these things with one another. But there's something even more um, accessible that we can do immediate uh, in terms of this. We can, rather than uh, experiencing gratitude as a, as an occasional thing, he says, Brother David says, we can learn to live gratefully. And what does he mean by grateful living? He says that it's becoming aware that every moment is a given moment, a gift. We haven't earned it. We haven't brought it about in any way. And we actually have no way of, of, of being assured that there will be another moment given to us. It's a gift and in it there's the opportunity to experience 
and to do. And it's what you could call a given moment. Uh, this really echoes the teaching of uh, this being a, a precious human life. As the Tibetans very much refer to this as a precious human life. So if we think every moment is a gift, what does that mean? So the gift of the, gift of the moment is not the thing that's given to us in the moment, but the opportunity, the opportunity to experience and to do. He says this is the essence or the gift within the gift. And we have this saying that opportunity knocks only once. But that's not true because in the next moment, we have another opportunity. So in any moment, we can use the opportunity or we can miss it. And if we use the opportunity, this can hold the key to our happiness. We have the key to, to our happiness in our hands, moment by moment. So importantly, he says, does that mean we have to be grateful or we should be grateful or can be grateful for everything? Of course we can't. You know. Gratitude is not the natural or appropriate response to violence or to war or to oppression or to exploitation. And on a personal level, we can't be grateful for things like the loss of a friend or for unfaithfulness, for bereavement. But he says, I'm not saying that we uh, can be grateful or we should be grateful for everything, but for the opportunity in every given moment. So even when the moment presents us with something really difficult, it also gives us the opportunity to respond. But in fact, our life is not so bad. Life is not so bad because most of our moments... Uh, the opportunity that's given to us is the opportunity to enjoy them. The trouble is that we miss this when we're rushing through life and we don't stop to see it. So here we, you know, we come back to the purpose and the usefulness of retreat where we can slow down. We can treat ourselves to stopping. We can receive the gift of the moment, or we can, we can practice that sense of opening to the gift of the moment. And of course, it also brings us face to face with our challenges. So we were, we were also joking yesterday amongst the, the, the teachers that maybe retreat is, you know, it's kind of a misleading word, the sense that you're all here for a treat. <laughs> it should have a title that has something, something more of a health warning on it. You know. <laughs> like a car- deep karmic cleanse or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is, a, this is an experience of sukha and dukkha, of happiness and suffering. But on balance, most of you have come back for more. Yeah. <laughs> so it is true that, though, that you know, from time to time, something really difficult is given to us. And he says, then... Our challenge is to rise to that. And sometimes we need to rise. And this also happens on retreat, that we need to rise to the moment um, by experiencing something that's painful. But we learn in that process. So we learn things like patience, compassion. So the, the Buddha famously said that patience was actually the highest form of austerity the most, um, the most uh, useful practice for burning up the defilements was the practice of patience. Well, sometimes uh, what we learn is to stand up for a conviction. Uh, and people who, who uh, make the use of these difficult op- opportunities are great sources of inspiration to us. So yesterday, Tanissa mentioned Nelson Mandela. I was personally, I was struggling recently with a kind of complicated situation where I was wondering, 
uh, how much of a stand I needed to take about the principle of equal opportunities for women. And I was walking in the park near where I live in Oxford and I passed a group of young people and in the middle of them was Malala Yousafzai, who's now studying at Oxford. And just seeing her made me made me realize, wow, you know, she's the, of course, the the young girl who was shot by the Taliban for trying to go to school in Pakistan, and she's now she's now a student, a first year student at university in Oxford, and has a Nobel Peace Prize for that. And uh, so seeing her, I you know. I have to do this for Malala, <laughs> not just for Malala, but, but and for my nieces and for all you know, for all of us that this matters. So she's been she's an inspiration to all of us. So people who who make something out of the difficult opportunities in their lives or seize the opportunity that's created by a really difficult situation inspire us. The beautiful thing that Uh, Brother David says with great compassion is that those of us who fail to make use of the opportunity, we get another chance because there's another opportunity that's going to present itself, a a new moment. This is beautiful um, perspective of forgiveness and compassion. And you notice how when we get stuck in the past, when we get stuck in self-recrimination, that actually hinders us from seizing the opportunities that are before us. There's something about this teaching of taking the opportunity of this moment that actually requires a letting go of the moment that's gone before. So how do we do this? He has a very simple method. It's another, it's not an acronym, but it's that simple. He says it's like children learning to cross the road you learn three things stop look and go <laughs> and this is what we're training in here isn't it may says he says stop look and go we've been saying maybe stop and listen <coughs> we have to stop and get quiet and we need support to build the habit of stopping because we need to uh, interrupt that kind of unconscious flow of habit. I love this word that Tanisha introduced us to: the dongas, those channels of uh, that are uh, dug out by the water flowing down the mountains. You know, that our, our minds and our our systems get into these grooves. But we need to stop, interrupt that in order to notice. There's so much that we're doing on retreat that seems kind of weird, would seem kind of weird to an outside observer, but is profoundly supportive for this sense of stopping. The bowing, for example, taking off your shoes as you come into this space, the little rituals we have before lunch. And Brother David says we need, to, we need to find ways, creative ways, our own creative ways of building stopping signs into our lives. So he talks about um, he was a missionary or he, worked, he lived and worked in Africa for some time and where he was there was no running water and no electricity. So when he came back to the States to his monastery and he could turn on a tap and have clean water and flick a switch and have electric light, it felt like something marvelous and wonderful and miraculous. And there was an immediate uprising of gratitude. And then at a certain point, it just became habitual again. So he decided to make notes and stick them on the taps and the light switches. And then he would turn on the tap and, ah, water. I had a mini experience like this in the summer when I, I mentioned the other day about being in a tent with the wasps buzzing around inside and trying to get out. So this was at a retreat center that's been started by a friend of ours, which is a very simple, minimal impact, um, small retreat place where the water, all the water has to be pumped up from down a valley. It's in the south of France and the very dry area in the foothills of the Pyrenees and the water has to be pumped up 
um, from down the valley by a solar-generated pump. So they can only pump on days when there's no cloud cover. And it actually takes quite a lot of... Um, there's quite a lot of kind of physical activity that's involved in getting this whole thing going. So the water is really precious and we have to be really careful about how we used it. And it's really interesting how much that was just a support for practice in itself in terms of uh, making everybody slow down and having a sensitivity to the environment around you and a sense of appreciation. So stopping, slowing down. And then the second piece is looking, look. And he says, if we open all our senses, there's no end to this incredible richness. So we'll have all experienced some of that uh, in the course of our time here. Just noticing the moon at night. This morning, as uh, Solwazi and I were coming up from the teacher's accommodation down at the bottom of the hill to the bowing in the early morning, there was this incredible sound of the coyotes in the distance. I don't know if some of you heard them. Or the freshness of the air. For me, this is really precious. It's uh, unusual for me to have this air that is this clean. And it's really worth our, our savouring these experiences. So uh, some of you might know Rick Hansen, the uh, neuropsychologist, and who says that our, our systems are like Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative ones. <laughs> it's partly why I've been talking about enlightenment factors as well as hindrances, because we tend to give so much uh, attention to... Uh, the things that are wrong in our mind and, and miss the moments of peace and well-being. Uh, so to really um, allow ourselves to savour, he says, taking in the good. So I, I don't know what the ratio is, but we need, I don't know how many positive experiences to counterbalance one negative one. Yeah. So this, this is really valuable to be able to really drink in that which nourishes us through our sense doors. Without, you know, we say, oh, we think, oh, we're good Buddhists, we shouldn't be attached to anything. But we can allow it to come, let it go. Allow what nature offers to nourish us. So one of the, I just want to also mention, as I'm sharing lots of other people's words here this evening, but uh, I've been very inspired recently by an uh, almost contemporary of Brother David's who um, also lived under Nazi occupation, but this time in Paris, who's a, a man called Jacques Luceron. And he became blind in an accident at school when he was seven years old. And um, wrote, wrote some wrote some a very beautiful memoir um, when he was about forty, I think. And he talks about um, being ex his gratitude for the fact that he he became blind when he was only seven, when he still uh, was so adaptable and so open to, open to life. And I just want to share a few a few things that he says because. Uh, to me, it really uh, opened my mind to the to the possibilities of uh, really bringing our senses online. So, first of all, he he talks about what happened when he found himself blind very suddenly after he, this accident, and then he had to have. Uh, surgery immediately and find that he'd permanently lost his sight and at first he was the first few days he was he felt that he you know, he was struggling to, he was struggling to see in the way that he had he had done and um, had a sense of anguish and a lack and a, and a, what he said what grown-ups call despair and then he says Finally, one day, and it wasn't long in coming, 
I realized I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct, I was almost about to say a hand laid on me, made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight towards the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I've had them or lost them together. And he has very beautiful things to say about sound and touch. He says, before my accident, I loved sound, but now it seems clear that I didn't listen to it. It was as though the sounds of earlier days were only half real, too far away from me and heard through a fog. Perhaps my eyes used to make the fog, but at all events, my accident had thrown my head against the humming heart of things and the heart never stopped be beating. You always think of sounds beginning and ending abruptly, but now I realized that nothing could be more false. Now my ears heard the sounds almost before they were there, touching me with the tips of their fingers and directing me toward them. Sounds had the same individuality as light. They were neither inside nor outside. They were passing through me. They gave me my bearings in space and put me in touch with things. It was not like signals they functioned, but like replies. And he says, of touching, touching the tomatoes in the garden and really touching them, touching the walls of the house, the materials of the curtains or a clod of earth, is surely seeing them as fully as eyes can see. But it's more than seeing them, it's tuning in on them, and allowing the current they hold to connect with one's own like electricity. To put it differently, this means an end of living in front of things and a beginning of living with them. Never mind if the word sounds shocking, for this is love. So he, he went on to become a, a really brilliant student at school. His mother, his mother taught him to read in Braille in about two months in the summer holidays so that he didn't have to get sent away to a, um, a special school for blind children. And then he became a top student in his school and a leader amongst his friends. So interesting person uh, to, to look at in terms of... Uh, the possibilities for opening senses. But to come back to Brother David, he says, as well as opening our senses, we can open our hearts. We can open our hearts to the opportunities to help others. And it's interesting to, to consider that actually nothing makes us happier than uh, when other people, when all people around us are happy. We can open our hearts to opportunities that invite us to do something. So it was really beautiful yesterday, wasn't it, to hear uh, Tanissa's account of uh, what was happening at Standing Rock. 
actually this same person, Jacques-Louis Serrand. He was in Paris as a 17-year-old as a student when the, the French occupied, uh, the, the Nazis occupied France. And for some time, you know, he could really, he could see what was going on. He taught himself German in order to understand the, um, the German broadcasts. And so he really had a sense of what was coming when it happens. And then it's question, what can I do as a blind 17-year-old schoolboy about this? And he rallied a group of his friends around him and started a printing and distributing uh, underground leaflets that shared the, the uh, information that was obtained from the BBC and from, uh, that, was, that was banned or blocked by the Germans. And then he became part of a bigger resistance movement and was responsible for recruiting the people in the resistance because in the absence of his sight, he had this ability to read people. He said it's like you could sniff out uh, people's, people's ethics, people's quality. And he had this very accurate sense of uh, who could be trusted and who could not be trusted. So he became an important leader in the resistance. And then uh, at the age of 19, he was the, his, his group was betrayed and they were all um, herded up and sent off to different prison camps. And he spent the rest of the, the war in Buchenwald concentration camp. And he was one of only 30 people out of 2,000 from the French resistance who got taken to these camps to survive at the end of the war. But he, his, even through that, all that experience, he, he somehow sustained, and this is probably what helped him survive, this sense of wonder and gratitude at the opportunity that life had given him. So this is the go part of the stop, look and go. It's doing what, whatever life offers to us in this present moment. And as we've said, you know, a lot of the time this is the opportunity to enjoy things. And sometimes it's something more difficult. But when we take that opportunity, we're being creative. And this practice is a path of creative response. So the practice of gratefulness or this stop, look, go, if you like, or stopping, listening, and responding is, and again, I'm, I'm really, I really want to own that I'm plagiarizing somebody else's talk, but to me, this teaching is so, it's like when I think, well, what's really the most useful thing that I want to share with you? This is, a, you know, I want this, this feels like... Uh, something that I th is really of value. And I invite you also later to go to uh, Brother David's TED Talk and check this out. So he talks also about how this, this practice has the potential to transform consciousness and transform our world. And how would that be? So he says, when you're grateful, you're not fearful. Isn't that true? And when we're not fearful, we're not violent, we're not dangerous. Sometimes I think what, what puts people off um, certain types of political action or activism is the sense of uh, anger or something that's actually quite frightening about the energy that gets constellated. But what if we could all be grateful activists. That's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? But what would happen if we were uh, engaging in what, when we, what happens when we engage in what we're ever, whatever we're doing um, in a manner that's fearless, that's therefore um, non-threatening, non-violent, And if we act out of a sense of, if we're grateful, we can act out of a sense of 
sufficiency, not a sense of scarcity. This is a perfect antidote to the envy and stinginess that uh, Kitisara was saying in the questions of Saka. The Buddha said they're really uh, at the root of um, much human suffering. He also says if you're grateful, then you can enjoy the differences between people and you're respectful to everybody. And that this actually changes the power pyramid under which we all live. Doesn't mean that we're all equal, but it makes for equal respect, which is the most important thing. He says the future of the world will be a network, not a pyramid. The traditional idea of, or the traditional revolution is one that just simply inverts the pyramid. You know, those at the bottom of the pyramid become the top of the pyramid. But actually, fundamentally, our way of doing things isn't really changed. Whereas actually, if the world became a network of grateful people, we could really change consciousness, we could really change society. Grateful and happy people. And I just want to also end with a bit of a reflection around the connection between uh, gratefulness and generosity. So playing with this word thanksgiving. Because um, as many of you are probably aware, you know, we've, we've talked about the, the th progressive training on the threefold training on the Buddhist path is sometimes described as the path of ethics, uh, sila, samadhi, this development of stability of mind or training the mind and panya, wisdom. But actually prior to that, or this, there's the cultivation of dana or generosity. So sometimes the path is described as a threefold path of generosity, uh, ethics, and mental development or development of the heart, bhavana. So dana or generosity is kind of the footprint of the culture that this practice and this tradition thrive in. It's crops up many guises in the, the, the chant on the highest blessings that we've been sharing. It's also um, the root, the bedrock of the monastic culture that we, we all trained in since the time of the Buddha. And I was reflecting that actually, you know, why is this? Yes, giving uh, is very important, but it's something, doesn't that place us all actually in a, in a container, in a, in a field of gratitude, of gratefulness? I think this is actually uh, as important uh, an impact as the, the um, practice of giving. We were just talking earlier about um, Kitisara and Tanis were remembering Ajahn Chah's funeral in Thailand where there were um, about a million people came to the monastery in northern Thailand in the space perhaps of a few weeks but apparently on one day there were as many as 200,000 people and everybody was fed and it was entirely um, on dana, on the offerings and, and things that people brought. So that no, no money um, was, was used for this event, or no, you know, there was no charge for any of, these, any of this event, but actually somehow that area hosted a million people over a few weeks, all within this culture that's uh, been around the the monastic tradition and has really embedded itself also in Thai culture of, of generosity. And this creates a field of gratefulness, a field of happiness and a field of, of trust in which these practices can thrive because the, the mind that's uh, grateful and trusting is happy and the mind that's happy is easily calm and concentrated the minds that's calm and concentrated it actually sees things with wisdom 
So we can see each moment as a gift and an opportunity. And we can also practice forgiving ourselves when we fluff it and we miss that moment. But we can welcome and pick up the opportunity of the next one. So just thinking again about the the sutta on the highest blessings, the Mangala Sutta that we've been chanting uh, together in the mornings. Sometimes I've heard this teaching over the years as feels like it's a list of shoulds. You know, you should look after your mother and father. You should be grateful. You should be generous. You should be humble, etc. You should go and listen to some Dharma. <laughs> but what if we don't pick it up like that? Could we pick it up as actually these are opportunities? These things, if they arise, or the possibility of them arise in our life, these are causes for gratitude. And it's also a reminder of how we can use the opportunities that arise in each moment in a way that brings happiness, that brings real happiness. So maybe we could... uh, let our practice of mindfulness be a practice of gratefulness. And then the question in each moment in our practice isn't so much, what should I do, but what can I do? So many possibilities in each moment. And it's often that there isn't one right choice to make. We have the freedom when we're not caught up in wanting in aversion, in delusion. We have the freedom to respond, to make choices, and to flourish as creative, kind, compassionate human beings and create the best possible world for those who come after us. So I wish you a fruitful practice of mindful gratefulness. Thank you for listening. We have um, about 25 minutes or so for walking and then there'll be a final sitting here at nine o'clock for those of you who still have some energy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.